Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3Cast. I am Brian, with me as always are Zach and Vince. We're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to start with our classic read this week. We are rereading Watchmen in anticipation of Doomsday Clock. And so we read issues one through three of Watchmen this week. And we're going to start by talking about that. And we'll get to this week's DC Comics in just a bit. But boys, before we start this, when was the last time you read Watchmen front to back? Probably right before the movie came out. Yeah, I think the same for me. So, gosh, that was like eight years ago, right? Yeah, sounds about right. Uh, wow. It's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that maybe aren't aware, I don't know who you are, but it's written by Alan Moore, illustrated by David Gibbons. It's a, uh, it's a really good comic, guys. Um, it, it surprised me how much I thought it was still a good comic. Um, I think that in the past eight years, my, um, kind of like dislike of Zack Snyder and my kind of like growing, um, I, I dislike isn't the right word, but I, I've become like more skeptical of like Alan Moore and his contributions to comics. And so I think those two things together just kind of brewed and made me think that I didn't like this book. (laughs) Um, But it's actually still very good. Yeah, I think so too. And you know what happened to me? I think I I realized this. So we read the first three issues. And uh, what I realized is a lot of my feelings about the mythology and the story of Watchmen are things that um, (laughs) either before Watchmen brought to the table and like mentally I just associate that or, or, or things from the movie that like they were maybe suggested in the original text, but in the movie they were explicitly talked about or shown, you know, or things that people have debated online. Like I've brought a lot of the outside discussion of this comic to my feelings about the comic and just reading the first three issues again, it occurred to me like I'm fascinated by what's not on the page sometimes, but I don't want to, I don't want a deeper dive into it. I don't want to see dollar Bill's story. I don't want to see the prequel Moloch story, you know, like all of these things that I, that I bring in to this because I've read or heard about them are things that aren't actually in the comic itself, and the comic is richer because of it. Especially that first issue. Oh my god. The first issue of Watchmen is incredible in what... in all this stuff that it lays out for you in in one issue, the mystery that it sets up and all the wheels that are in motion, and then a lot of the things that it just suggests that by the end of 12 issues, it doesn't it doesn't even actually flesh out, you know, it's, it's just this world that you have to sort of imagine or it's innuendo or it's, you know, it's, it's mystery on purpose and, and it's things we don't need explained. You know, coming back to like all of these like extra textual things feeding back into the book, it was really hard for me to not, read this and like hear lines from the movie like you you know you have like Rorschach's opening monologue and I can't not hear like the Jackie Earl Haley's like gruff dopey like 
and no, I mean he did a fine he, he had a fine performance. It was fine. It's fine. I shouldn't like degrade it, but like I can't help but hear that when I hear the you know like and I'll look down and whisper no and like I there's like another line when he's talking to um, Night Owl where I can hear it like clear as day from I think like one of the trailers where he's like maybe it was a political killing mm. and like you know like I can just hear that stuff in my head while I read this and it really. Um, it does detract from it, I think. Oh, oh, absolutely. There's part in the first issue, I think, where Laurie says, uh, oh, I can't stand his voice, the monotone. He's just creepy or something like that. And in my mind, I think, oh, my God, how much better is it to just hear a a, uh, nondescript sort of uh, explanation of what his voice might sound like and let you suggest it rather than hearing an actor do it, you know? Um, that's so much more effective. And I wish that I didn't, again, not that like Jackie Earl Haley was one of the best things about that movie. Kind of, I think. I actually um, think, by the way, we, we should watch the movie after we read the book. Oh boy. I think that we, you're probably right. Um, oh God, you too. All right. All right. Um, we should but, have mystery science theater it. I, I also, how, it. How, how about this? How about this? I will I'll make a deal with the audience right now. If we get, 10 tweets that support us doing that, we will Mystery Science Theater that movie. Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. All we need is 10. We get 10 tweets in support of this, we will MSC3K the movie. God. Paul I is going to round up nine other people. <laughs> um, Special bonus episode. I'll do it. I also hear Info Rorschach when I read uh, Rorschach's dialogue now, so it's a problem. Why, why don't you give us a little taste of that there, Vincey? Human bean juice. That wasn't that that wasn't my bet. Hold on, hold on. Herm. Human bean juice. <laughs> I like how he's George W. Bush at the end there. <laughs> 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 human, bean <juice. laughs> human bean juice. <laughs> Strategery. <laughs> human bean juice. Uh, Alright. Um No, um, yeah. Well, I mean, did, did did you guys think like that first issue, right? Holy cow! That okay, so that like um, sequence that doesn't have any text where Rorschach is um, breaking into Eddie Blake's apartment and is exploring, like investigating the crime scene, and then he finds the costume. Uh-huh. That's like I think that could stand up in like one of my favorite sequences in comics i think just like with how well it's laid out and how great the colors are all the colors are they're fantastic amazing and they would never happen today no no it's just so good um yeah i man yeah so that's that's probably like one of my favorite parts of that first issue it is Yeah. yeah and and that sequence you know if it weren't for all the awful things that he says throughout these three issues, like, oh my God, Rorschach is a monster more so than I even knew remembered before. Completely agree. Yeah. Like some of the stuff he says, like, wow, I forgot that he was that, that rough, you know, he's apolitical Vince. Oh yeah. He's a complete, his apolitical outlook is certainly, uh, interesting. (laughs) Um, but, but that particular sequence that you're talking about, I feel like if, if you know, if I read only that, I could be tricked into thinking that I liked Rorschach a lot more than I do, you know? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it really just makes me want like a good question comic, you know? Yeah. But there's no question comic that's that good either. That's that's no. as good as that sequence. Um. So I I have a Rorschach question for you guys. Um. You know, obviously you you can't unknow things that you know about the book. I guess we should say also we're gonna spoil the book if you somehow haven't read it. Be listening to this podcast every month, every week rather. Um. But you know, I remember when I first read the book the reveal of who is under the Rorschach mask was kind of a surprise. Is it totally telegraphed now, or was I just missing it the first time? Has it always been this telegraphed? I don't remember. Um, I do notice that there are, like, a lot of, like, red herrings. Like, there's that guy who walks out of the funeral who has the hat on, and I think you're supposed to think that that's Rorschach. Right, but it's not. Rorschach's watching him. Right, exactly. I really don't remember how I reacted to that or if I was surprised by that or not. I was was surprised the first time, but I was a dumb dumb kid, too, so... Yeah, um, I was much, much younger than I saw. I guess that's that's something we should maybe touch on really quick. When was the first time... We touched on the last time. When was the first time that we all read Watchmen? (sighs) Oh... I know I was way too young. <laughs> I was way too young to like appreciate it. I know it was sometime in early high like I would guess when I was a sophomore in high school. And I would I would say a freshman in college for me. Which, okay, I... which because of our age difference is probably not that far off from the same time. Yeah. See what happened to me was um there was some list that came out and I don't know, it was probably like IGN or something with like the best uh, stories of all time, you know? And of course, Crisis on Infinite Earths was on there. Uh, Watchmen was on there. Dark Knight Returns was on there. And I bought all three of those books together. Um, when I was way too young and also too uh, early of a comic book reader to really appreciate any of that stuff right so i'm reading it and i'm like i don't know (laughs) okay see in in 2000 this was named one of the one of time magazine's best novels of the 20th Mm -hmm. century Mm -hmm. and i feel like it was just like de rigueur to have this in your college dorm room at that point i was i was a college freshman in 2000 so i feel like it was a lot of my friends even guys who weren't necessarily like big comic readers either owned it or had recently read it because of that list. I feel like it was people had really jumped on it. So that's when I first read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I think I had maybe heard a little bit about it, but I think the first time that I was really conscious of it was actually the trailer for the film that ran before the dark Knight. Right. You mentioned this last week that that was like, yeah big moment for you yeah yeah so like when i saw that trailer i had always like really been into like comic tangential things and had probably i knew like what the big comic stories were um just from kind of like seeing lists like vince had mentioned or you know like puttering around on wikipedia but i never actually like read any of those books and then i um just because of like intimidation of you know where do you start all of those like 
first time reader problems, whatever. Um, but then I saw like, oh, okay, here's this thing that's like really well regarded and is like a standalone thing that I can just like pick up and have it all and read it. Um, so I, the next day I went to like a Barnes and Noble to try to like pick it up and, um, they were actually out of it, so I ended up buying the Dark Knight Returns instead, um, and then like ordered Watchmen off Amazon. So I mean, those it two is... were like my my first, you know, go- it was like that. Those two and Kingdom Come actually were like the first mm. big three things I bought. It is amazing that two thirds of our podcast bought uh, the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen in the same like <laughs> transaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was that was when I was getting into mature comics, you guys. Yeah, right. graphic because novels, guys. Graphic, graphic novels. Exactly. And I think you know, it's. Uh, I think that is a lot of the baggage that I've had with Watchmen since then. Absolutely. Is that it represents that aspect of comics, um, mm-hmm. and just kind of being bothered by that. Yeah, and I, I think that's totally fair. But I also think rereading it now. It earns its place as that because it's it really is the most literary comic you'll ever want to read. You know, like I mean, just well, see, the fact I... that there's so many different like uh, like the medium is used in a thousand different ways. Oh, there, it's fantastic! Yeah, you know, yeah. and even the stuff that I think does not do as well on subsequent readings like the under the hood stuff, even the black freighter stuff to a certain degree. I feel like all of that is much more thrilling the first time you read it, but it's still just, it's such a masterful use of the genre and mashing up different, different ways comics can tell stories and playing with the timelines of things. It's just, it is such a dense comic without being impenetrable. Like it's not a comic that, and there are some comics that we read this week that we will talk about that like from issue to issue, just lose me because it's not memorable or it's not particularly well put together or well-written. And like, this is as, as dense and as, and as thought out as any comic you'll ever read, but it's not difficult to read. Mm, Yeah, no. And I, I do think that, I mean, obviously, this sort of, for all all intents and purposes, did it first. There may have been some things like that came around that time. I mean, I'm trying to think. When did when did Alan Moore do Swamp Thing? Was it before or after this? Before. It was before. Which I mean, that was that was really special in a lot of ways and i'm sure there were like other things from other writers and and and, you know in times since then you know i think obviously it's a longer much longer series but i think sandman could potentially like eclipse this book in terms of like pure literary value or you know things like that but as far as like one kind of like singular work i yeah i think watchmen still kind of holds up is that that like go-to book yeah yeah the, I think... I mean, one of the special things about it is that it's 12 self-contained issues mm-hmm. and uh and that's that's literally all you need and you don't need to read the back matter at all you don't all the tie-ins yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know, it's interesting to me this used to be like the the great example of if you had a friend who didn't like comics and they wanted to give it a shot. This was always what I gave people. Because for that exact reason. You don't need to know anything going into it. 
There's nothing else to read after it. It just shows what the medium can do. And before Watchmen fucked that up, Doomsday Clock fucks that up. And just, I think, the overall, the fetishization of, to me, the weaker parts of the comic. Mm-hmm. So, one thing I noticed while reading this again um, was that I thought well, part of my part of my hang up with Watchmen is how over the top I feel like some of the characters or aspects are. Like, you know, we talk about Rorschach and how psychotic he sounds, and and when reading it again, I kind of thought, no, there are people that talk like this. There are people that sound like this today. And I joke that it's Info Rorschach, you know, but it's so fitting, right? Yeah. Like, when you when you hear, you know, someone like Alex Jones talk about the scum um, and, and how, you know, the Democratic nominees for president or whatever are covered in flies because they smell like sulfur and they're demons from hell. Like, that's the exact same stuff that Rorschach is saying, you know? Yeah. And when yeah. he talks to the comedian, or when he talks about the comedian, and they talk about how he's practically a Nazi, and he's this, like, government stooge who accepts that America is, you know... When America he, is. America is. That's basically... I mean, he says... He, the, 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 exactly. the line which is so great is when he says, you know, what happened to the American dream? You're looking at it. It came true. That that it that's <laughs> I'm sorry, but we're not that far off. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I that line stood out to me too, and I said like, "Oh, god damn it, that's Trump!" Like <laughs> in so many ways, like he is the bastardization of the American dream. And I hate that I thought that because I don't want this book to be associated with any like I, I, I liked it. it when. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, I don't want to be like just super egocentric, but. Um, so much of this rang true to like the now, you know, I yeah. think more so than it did the first time I read it. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. And that extent that extends too to the way that they talk about, um, uh, Adrian Vite as this extremely wealthy pop icon liberal figure as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, like, I don't you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. forget that either. Liberal intellectual, basically, you know, yeah. which is the ultimate enemy of the right right now. Even so. something as superficial as the amount of um, like fear that is put into Russia in this book <laughs> feels Gosh. so contemporary right now, you know, and that's again yeah. reading this book sixteen years, sorry, seventeen years ago when I first read it. You know, it does. It didn't seem Russia didn't seem to be a big threat. You know, so now it just it really does. It, in some ways, the book felt claustrophobic to me, in a, in a really compelling way. Well, you know what's like really weird is that that seems to be what Doomsday Clock is coming out of. You know, yeah. Like I know we all kind of like gave a that Ashcan a lot of like crap for what it was doing but i and i still don't think it's great but after rereading these like three issues i'm kind of like well i can see where jeff johns's headspace is right now you know oh yeah i can 
like I can I, see how he would take Watchmen and like it's he's not trying to shoehorn Watchmen into current events like Watchmen slides in like a fitted glove you know yeah yeah I I think I I think I said at the time you know it's not a mistake to keep Watchmen related comics in a political mindset it's just that. I don't think that's Jeff John's game, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's right. what he's good at. And I think Alan Moore through Watchmen proved that he can do that. And John's has to prove it to me. And it's going to be, it's going to be really tough. And maybe that's not fair to him, but going on the ash can, I don't, I don't know if he's got it. <laughs> we'll see. I'm going to be very interested to read the ash can after we read this comic again, like after yeah. we finish this. Uh, to go back and read it. Uh, yeah, I, me too. I think we have to give Dave Gibbons a boatload of praise oh, here. God, so good. I mean, I think I at the point of my like, I mean, that was like the beginning of kind of my real comics fandom, and I definitely didn't appreciate the artist near like even a you know a fraction of what I should have. Um, but man so much of what makes this book great just like rests on him Mm-hmm. there's so there there's in each of these issues there's more than a handful of iconic scenes that i will remember forever you know mm-hmm. and beyond that every single little design choice from like what the characters are wearing at any given moment to what they're drinking or smoking or what's on the signage behind them or the way that the city looks. It's, it's all so interesting. It's also, you know, there's, there's not a poor art decision made here. It's so meticulous. Yeah. And I feel like so much of the book is, it's 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 interesting because so much of the book is the characters living in their own heads, whether it's remembering things that happened or just you can see like there's that great first scene where um, Dan and Lori go out to dinner, and you you, you don't what was that? Oh, and uh, you don't get uh you don't get a ton of of close up on them, but everything like in their uh body language everything in there um the way they interact it just it gives this sense of like shared history and this ice thawing between them and it's just it's that's not even in the text in a lot of ways just the way that gibbons draws them i i I can't praise his as been said i can't praise his his small decisions anymore everything he does just perfectly works um zach was there anything that particularly stood out to you I mean, like I mentioned, there's that that one sequence that like really um, grabbed me this time, even more so. But um, the colors this time too. I I'm kind of ashamed to say, like I don't know who actually is the colorist. Was it John Higgins? Okay. Um, man, like this book is so much brighter than I remembered it being. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent observation. Um, like, there's still, like, a lot of, like, dark inks, but the color palette is 
you know, a lot of yellows and purples and oranges, um, and, and not like dark shades of them either. It's, it's very, you know, neon, um, but it doesn't feel, it still feels grounded somehow. Um, I don't know. It's really weird. It's hard to like peg down the exact tone that the art creates. Well, I feel like this style of coloring where there's a lot more like single panels drenched in one in one color, I feel like those things just don't happen anymore. That yeah. that's a coloring choice that is that has gone by the wayside for whatever reason. You see it a little bit like there was that uh James Robinson J Bone book, The Saviors, from a couple years ago from Image, that like each issue had one hue. Like the first issue I remember was blue. It was just like the only color used was blue. You get stuff like that occasionally where it's super stylized, but not on like a panel to panel basis do things change as much as they did here. Um and I wonder if that style will ever come back or if that's always going to be like a class, just a classic thing that was very much of its time and place. I yeah, don't I don't know. Uh, I mean, again, we, we don't want to get too deep into the issues because, you know, obviously we're hoping everybody's reading along with us and, and will you know let us know what they're thinking of the reread here. But uh, do you guys have any... Any particular sequence, any particular um, other scene we haven't talked about that, that you want to talk about? You want to get out there before we move on? Um, I don't think so. I've always, like, really, the scene where the comedian is in Moloch's home and you mm-hmm. see the whole scene from Moloch's perspective while he's in bed, I, I've always... I was, I remember being like impressed with that sequence when I first read it. Um, I don't know. The whole third issue is really great. I think especially, um, you know, that final scene of Dr. Manhattan on the moon, um, which is actually like one of my favorite. um, Someone, I see it pop up on Twitter every once in a while, but someone has a, like that picture is the background on their phone and um any that it's set up so that vince probably knows the thing i'm talking about yeah uh, yeah (laughs) where like a message will come up and then once it goes away the underlying text is like the i'm I'm tired of these these humans and they're and they're like foolish dealings or something i don't know it's like a line from this and it just makes me laugh every time um i do want to say that i I guess I, you know, w- when you read the book again, certain things that you remembered, you you realize you remember differently or anything like that. I guess I did not remember how quickly we saw the um, the Laurie John relationship fall apart. Like we see early on in the book, almost nothing of them being happy. I know that later on we're gonna get more of that, but I forgot sort of how instantaneously we see their displeasure with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the first time we see them interact outside of when Rorschach comes and tells him the comedian's dead is when Dr. Manhattan's trying to have a devil's threesome with himself and uh, and his lady. <laughs> All right. Um, 
Well, let's take a quick break. Make sure to read issues uh, four through six next time, listeners, and we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Paul, the host of the Comic Syllabus Podcast, a weekly show on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts. We read widely and we dig deep, bringing different analytical approaches to our study and appreciation of the wide variety of comics out there. Along with comics teachers, critics, and creators, we do close readings of classic and current exemplars of the medium. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday here at MultiversityComics.com. So let's dig deep. All right, guys, we are back. We're going to start with uh, this 80-page book that DC put out this week called DC House of Horror, number one. It was um, it was an interesting idea. So DC gathered a bunch of famous uh, slash successful prose authors and invited them all to write short um, Halloween stories set in the DC universe. So I guess you get- that's what they were. <laughs> Yeah, you get people like uh, Edward Lee, Brian Keene, um, uh, Rath Johnson White, the, those uh, Nick Cutter. Those are some of the names that maybe you're familiar with uh, if you're a fan of like horror type novels. But you know, one of the things I don't remember being initially announced, although probably it was, I just forgot it, was that Keith Giffen was going to be plotting all these stories, and so you get the sort of singular voice doing the broad strokes for these books. And then you get all these writers and they're trying to make sense of Keith Giffen plots. And you know, you get, I mean, a, a really, really interesting collection of, of artists, you know, from Kyle Baker to Howard Porter to um, Rags Morales to uh, Scott Collins, Dale Eaglesham. Tom Tom Rainey, um, Bilquis Evely. Um, we'll get to Howard Shaken later, uh, but you know it's really a uh, it's it's an interesting assemblance of talent. I don't know about you guys. For me, this was an almost impossible slog to get through. It was tough. I, I thought um, it, I thought it was bad from beginning to end. I thought very little of it felt like Halloween. It felt more like um, torture porn or something. <laughs> um, it was definitely that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Do we like want to go through these stories? Do, were there any that like stand out that we want to talk about? There, there were I, a couple that I thought were okay. All right, let's let's just start by saying this. What I think is is one of the more interesting choices about the book overall is that with the exception of one or two of these, they really are like let me rephrase that. When I when I read the first story, I was like, "Huh, so that's not a Superman story." Even though they're saying it's a Superman story, it's not at all a Superman story. After that, they all kind of have elements that needed the DC anchor. Does that make sense? Like there needed to be that hook to the DC universe or it wouldn't have made any sense for that story to be told. But that first Superman story was so barely a Superman story that it really lowered my expectations right off the bat for this book. Well, it's, it's, it's what if, 
what if Superman was a evil baby instead of a a good baby? A good baby. <laughs> a good good baby. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was just it was just an excuse to show like Martha Kent getting beat up for ten pages or something. It was. Yeah. It was problematic. Yeah. Uh, and just shitty. Oh, uh, yeah. Howard Porter's art was good. He's good. Sure. Um, He's done better stuff this week. Nah, I don't know. We'll oh. get to that comic soon. <laughs> um, I, I thought this next one was okay. I thought it felt like a, I mean, it felt like it it was easily the one that had the least ties to the DC universe. And it felt just like a horror story, you know? Yeah. And the art was really good. It was fine. It was it was not the most offensive of the stories, but it was not my favorite of the stories either. Although, I, to be fair, I don't know if I have a favorite. It wasn't my least not I favorite think, of the stories. I think I have a favorite. It's not this one, though. Well, let's get to that. What, what was your favorite? I, I liked the Zombie Justice League one. Yeah, that's the one. That's the least offensive one. Yeah, I think so. What's the most offensive one? I mean, it... it Define offensive. The the Superman one was most offensive to me, but I think the worst one was the the Two Face one. You mean the one that was essentially the exact same story as like the, as the uh, Batman and Joker Batman one story? Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and see, the, I think the Green Arrow one was really bad too. The that Shazam one was a giant piece of shit, also. <laughs> Um, the Shazam one was like weirdly also the, nothing. Also, yeah. the Harley Quinn one. That one was really messed up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like any of it. Not even the Justice League one. I just. I could. <laughs> I guess I want a Halloween comic where it's like the Justice League getting into spooky situations. And not what if all of these characters were actually bad? Justice, I want but spooky. Yeah, yeah. I want an alien showing up at the watchtower looking for candy. That's what I want. (laughs) Sure, yeah. I didn't get like the Shazam one was really. It was literally just eight to ten pages of Billy Batson resisting. This like... Hey, I got an earring, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a punk rock Billy Bats, and I'm not gonna bring, I'm not gonna take my girlfriend because it's just uh, I said it. Uh... Oh, what? Why is he kind of uh, Dan DiDio there? Because I have one voice I can do, Vince, and uh, that made me so mad. His stupid earring. He looks like he, he looks like he's in Green Day. Stupid, sexy Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what if Billy Joe Armstrong were Billy Batson. Maybe that's what this is. Maybe. Uh, the Rocket. <laughs> yeah.
All right, let's let's move off this pile of shit and <laughs> go over to the, the regular comics this week. Uh, but uh, disclaimer: we forgot to read Rough and Ready. Maybe we'll read it for next week. We'll no, see. No, no, oh. I, I won't. Okay, Vince won't. Um, well, that brings us to Action Comics 990, um, written by Dan Jurgens, who also did the, the, the breakdowns, the um, the layouts to this issue, illustrated by Victor Bogdanovic. And I have I have kind of a hot take here, guys. Uh, this was the best issue of Jurgens' Action Comics so far. Yeah, I I think I can get behind that. Yeah. They said Superman, like, you know, being Superman and making people talk to one another. Mm. It gave Oz some actual, like, motivation and character work. It put John in the middle nicely. Um, yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, it was it was really well paced as far as, like, going from scene to scene. I Yeah, yeah I felt like it was over in a breeze. Um just, just because it was such a fluid read, and uh, I don't really have any criticism. There, there wasn't even a there wasn't even a lot of corny dialogue or anything that I can remember. Um, no, I actually thought that the dialogue was pretty. Other than um, uh, what's his name, Lombard. Um, oh, Lombard, yeah. Yeah, being like, oh yeah, we. Maybe just had a terrorist attack, but I really think the kid would want to see my jersey. Yeah, yeah. after being shot. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Oh, that's right. He did get shot. Yeah. He got shot point blank range last week. <laughs> I thought he was dead. Can't kill Steve Lombard. Uh, um, but yeah, this was actually... I really did like the, the bit with like Superman getting the the two sides of that conflict together and being like hey let's talk about it and then when they wouldn't talk about it he's like fine i'm just going to destroy all your weapons <laughs> yep um and bogdanovic's art is just so great here yeah i love the way he draws uh superman flying how he points his fingers no i'm looking for it let me see so like very first page first or second page he, it it almost looks like he's doing it to like enhance velocity or something. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, they're like kind of like curved outward, mm-hmm. like fanned out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Greg Greg Capullo did that in Metal a couple weeks ago, I think, and uh, it it completes the Bogdanovic Capullo connection for me. Yeah. Yeah. This is a super fun issue. I hope Bogdanovic is on the book for a while, even though we know that Brett Booth is taking over <laughs> for the Booster Gold arc. So, all right. Well, that brings us to Batgirl number 16, written by Hope Larson, illustrated by Chris Wild Goose. I just wrote a thousand words. Uh, when you time you hear this, a week ago, I'm multiversity about this book and how much I love this book right now. And uh, this issue... Continued that for me. I thought this was an amazing, amazing issue where it dealt with a lot of really sort of heartbreaking moments for these characters. It gave us that sweet, sweet Dick and Babs as teenager stuff that we've all been really enjoying. There was uh, there's a lot to love about this comic. 
almost too much <laughs> to love. I can't handle it all. Um, yeah, this uh, I never want this arc to end. <laughs> Agreed. Um, and like also, how like they're dealing with some really weighty issues right now, you know, with the with the uh, I can't remember the character's name. Um, the Red Queen and her sister. Yeah, yeah, and just you know, she meant like a really grim end if if you know everything that we've been presented with is true and. Um, yeah, this book is like tackling some tough issues, and, but in like a, a good way, like a smart way, and, and like in addition to all of the like really great um, relationship stuff with Dick and Bab. So, mm-hmm. one one thing that I love about this book is that um, it shows you kind of how got like everyone talks about how awful gotham is and how screwed up it is but what that usually means is like weird villains or mobsters and uh well the um what's his name the mad hatter is involved in some way um this arc really shows you how like gotham's you or actually batgirl like this run on batgirl in general shows you how gotham's youth can get wrapped up in how twisted gotham is um really organically you know Mm -hmm. yeah um chris wild goose is amazing well he's great he's doing on this book that that shot of babs and dick having their first kiss oh forget about it the best just the best I uh, I love the way, and I I noticed this because, like I said, I, I wrote this big article about it, so I was really like pouring over the art the last couple of days in this book. And there's the great scene earlier in this issue where they are talking to the gangsters in that uh, like I guess they bust in and they um they're talking to them, and you can see like both Dick and Babs are like they're taking on this posture of like they're in charge here, and they're kind of presenting themselves as being bigger and tougher than they are. And then you see them on the rooftops just like leaping from building to building in this totally carefree way. And it just shows them like being such teenagers, you know, it's just, they're trying to present themselves as being tougher than they are, but left their own devices. They're still just kids. You know, it's, it's just, there's so much amazing work he's doing with the body language and, uh, and hope Larson's scripts are just so fun and pardon the pun, hopeful, and it's just ah man, I can't get enough of this book. This is probably like just in this past arc, um, worked its way into my like the top three books that I'm most excited to read mm-hmm. when it comes out. Yeah, we promised Paul Lie we would do a top ten again soon. Um, not this week, but sorry, Paul. But yeah, we'll have to revisit that again because I I am interested to see where all of our sort of interest has has gone now but i agree zach this is this arc is the best and uh for anyone out there who listens to this show and trade weights i don't know why you would listen to our show if you weren't reading along every week but if you are that person the first wild goose arc just came out in paperback yesterday or i guess when you're hearing this last week the son of the penguin arc just came out in uh in bookstores so if you're waiting to pick it up now is the time to do so 
Uh, anything else to say about Batgirl? No. It's very good. You should read it if you're not. Yeah, what Zach said. Uh, that brings us to Batman Beyond, number 13. Written and illustrated by Bernard Chang. Get a little fill-in issue here. What did you guys think of this issue? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it was better than most, but... It was not shway. Let's put it that way. No. Well, they... what did you guys think about the, like the three parallel stories that's had like almost nothing to do with each other. I hated it. I hated the, the design of it. Like you have, to, you're reading them. They're on every page, except they each take up about a third of the page, except sometimes that's not true. Like sometimes there'll be a page that has a big spread and it's only from one of the stories. And, uh, I just thought that that was a, I'm sorry, but it was a really awful way to present this issue. One of the difficulties, we've briefly touched on this before, is that we get uh, PDFs from DC that we use primarily, at least least I primarily use those to prepare for the show because we get them before the issues are out, like for us to go buy or to get on Comixology or whatever. So I feel like this type of a story is especially hard to read in the PDF format. So that could be part of the, the issue here, but I just didn't think it was very well put together. No, and I, and I don't think I don't think if we if it were in like floppy form, it would be any better. I mean, you you either have to choose to read one story at a time going across the page, or you have to try to follow three stories at once, flipping from page to page, and it's just not optimal either way. It's a clever idea. But it's poorly executed. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get right to Batman the Drowned. Not the Drowned. That was last week. Batman the Merciless. Uh, written by Peter Tomasi. Illustrated by Francis Manipal. Um, This is the Wonder Womanized Batman. He has the mask or the helmet of Ares. Uh, I will say I think this is the best of the tie-ins since perhaps the Red Death. I I'll agree with that. I I liked this one a good deal, and I mean, a good portion of that is just um, Manipul's art, but it um it did a lot more than I think some of the other issues have done. Vince, what say you? Yeah, I mean, it was more like those first couple issues that I enjoyed of these tie-ins than than the last few. Um, I even kind of liked the little banter between the leaders of all the different groups, including yeah. Father Father Time was there. It yep. was nice seeing Father Time back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this issue had a lot of really great um, ties to kind of older or you know more obscure DC continuity that I never would have expected. I mean, Father Time is more recent, but there were callbacks to characters from Jeff Johns's uh, Green Lantern run, um, Cowgirl and um, Tom, the two two of the um, astronauts. Yeah. 
and uh, I, there was like one other. I, there's something else I think that was in the issue that I thought was like another callback to some obscure piece of continuity, but I can't remember what it was. Um, I mean, again, <gasps> oh, what? Um, I remember now. Uh, one of the the Twisted Robins is carrying a hardcover version of the multiversity. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. I love that. Uh, what I was going to say is that you know this, much like the other tie-ins, this does not really give you anything that you need to enjoy metal, but this felt like one of the more interesting, unique stories to tell. Even just like the... Uh, you know when when that giant bomb is dropped on, on the uh, the area, how this Batman just absorbs that bomb. It was it was a moment where I was like, as I'm reading, it, I'm like, there's no way they're killing off any of these characters in a weird tie-in. But the fact that I even had to think about that shows you that there was that this that the stakes here were probably more than they should have been, and that that's a testament to the writing. Yeah. Well, and I really thought that. Um... This so up to a certain point in the issue, this Batman is probably one of the more sympathetic ones, yes, um, because of his connection to Wonder Woman. And I really thought for a good portion of the issue that they were maybe setting up a plot point later in the book where maybe this Batman would uh, maybe like turncoat because of Wonder right. Woman or something. Um, but then at the end of the issue, we find out. Now he really is as big a dirtbag as the rest of them. Um, but I, th- I thought that alone was a that in and of itself was a pretty good twist, too. Agreed. Yeah, this just felt like a much more and maybe it's Tomasi. You know, Tomasi is is one of the best writers that DC has in their stable. And maybe it's just that he uh, he prepared more for this. It just seems like this is a much, much better thought out tie-in than some of the other ones we've gotten yeah its scope seemed a lot bigger um but and even in doing so it still managed to you know convey the origin of this batman in a concise and enjoyable way um whereas you know we've had other books that only focus on that that batman and it's still not a very good story right right no, I agree with that. Um, and, and like we said before, Father Time and, and Director Bones, like that's that's good stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't recognize that other character, the Colonel Jonas, I think. Do you know who that, with the eye patch? He looked familiar, but I don't remember where I know the character from. Me, me either, um, and that they made reference to, a, to Elvis, a, a, an Elvis monster. I felt like uh, there must be some obscure DC continuity that I'm missing out on here. Quite possibly. I should have no. done some research. Yeah, but, you know, we had 18 comics, whatever to read this week, plus Watchmen. <laughs> You're so. right. Um, but, yeah, let's let's shift over to, uh, to Blue Beetle. Blue Beetle number 14, uh, written by Christopher Sabella, new new writer on the book, illustrated by Scott Collins. Um this was supposed to be, I believe Tony Silas was the uh, 
solicited artist that he's still supposed to do later issues in this arc. But Scott Collins, who did the majority of the this book under the pen of uh, the aforementioned Keith Giffen, uh, was on art for this, and so it added a bit of continuity between the two, the two stories. But I think this was, even though it's still a relatively slight story, I enjoyed this issue far more than any other Blue Beetle issue this year. Mm. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an immediate improvement on the on the hacky scripts that we've been getting. <laughs> Even there was a little bit of bickering among friends, but it wasn't quite the uh, the nonstop. It's not this endless back and forth. Yeah. Zach, what'd you think? Uh, yeah, I mostly enjoyed this. Um, if I, I kind of wish that this is the Blue Beetle, or you know, at least close to the Blue Beetle that we had been getting all through Rebirth, I thought this was. Uh, I mean, it's still not my favorite thing that I've read this week or, you know, in Rebirth, but it's a much better take on the character, I think. Um, And I thought the, uh, you know, the whole spaceship in the desert thing worked really well for this character. I mean, it'd be fun to just have a cool, um, like, young superhero that tackles, like, sci-fi kind of threats like this um yeah i thought i mean i thought this was a lot of fun yeah i was kind of looking forward to somebody else's art even though i like collins just to give the book more of a clean break mm-hmm. but collins is a fine enough job here yeah all right let's jump over to detective comics number 967 Written by James Titan IV, illustrated by Alvaro Martinez. We finally get the Tim and Bruce reunion we've been waiting for for quite some time now. We get the return of uh, Kate Kane's sister. It's been quite some time since we've seen her in a, in a comic. And uh, we get, aside from spoiler, more or less the entire Bat crew together. It was... Uh, I really enjoyed this issue. I think the, there were some really nice earned moments. The Gotham Knights, you mean? The Gotham, the Gotham Knights, yes. Which is a great touch. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. This was a great issue. This was an all-time great issue of this run so far. Um, yeah, the, all the... It's, it's hard in comics where you're like constantly killing people and bringing them back to make the reactions feel earned, you know, Mm -hmm. but this kind of did it against all odds. Like, take a look at me now. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Like Bruce busting into that hospital room with his, like, yeah, I own this place. See, (laughs) sweet leather jacket on. Yeah. And we even we did get a spoiler appearance, even though uh, it wasn't the full spoiler. But uh, she was there for a, a panel or two. Yeah, yeah. This this arc, man. And did did you notice the um, nice little nods to what's going over in uh, Action Comics too? A nice little bit of connect- connective tissue. 
um what what specifically uh there was just like a i think i'm trying to remember what scene it was in it might have been in the scene where spoiler was there there was just a like a news broadcast that was talking about what superman was doing um like fighting the terrorists and the bombing on the daily planet and that, mm. those sorts of things mm-hmm. um i loved the scene with alfred meeting older tim mm-hmm. yeah great. yeah um, I, I'll also say because it was Alvaro Martinez doing the art, a serious lack of nut faces. <laughs> uh, that's too bad, actually. Yeah. Um, interestingly, this Tim Drake inventing Brother Eye thing, again, kind of ties into the New 52 Futures End stuff, kind of ties into the New 52 Batman Beyond stuff. It's it's interesting how all these threads are coming together, but it doesn't feel like it's uh, being forced. It, it feels pretty pretty honest. Mm, yeah, I I did think it was pretty weird because it. I mean, it does seem to kind of wash over Futures End. Not that I like particularly care, but um, well, I guess maybe not. I can't remember like what state brother I was like in the, in the present time when, uh, when all of that was going on. I don't know. I probably shouldn't think about it too much. It was good though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the flash. The other metal tie in for this week, the first part of the, um, bats out of hell written by Josh Williamson, illustrated by Howard Porter. I have a feeling we're going to have very different opinions on this. Zach, <laughs> I want to start with you on this. I thought this was really bad. I thought like, this was maybe the worst, other than maybe like the the Dawnbreaker issue, I thought this was maybe the worst metal tie-in so far. See, I did not think so at all. I didn't think it was great by any stretch, but I, I, I see no real problem with this issue. Vince. Vince, where do you fall on this? Uh, I think I'm closer to you, Brian. I don't. I'm interested in hearing Zach talk about what he thought was so bad. One one thing I thought was bad about it is that there's an awful lot of exposition, like the but, first three pages, and then later sprinkled in there. There's all this exposition about what's been going on, and I understand not everyone is reading all the metal stuff like we are, and this is. This is the Flash, so if somebody's only reading the Flash, they'll probably be confused. But like, oh, but that's also was... been kind of Williamson's <sighs> game lately. I feel like Josh Williamson has been a lot more exposition heavy in his Flash run. Yeah, this is particularly bad. I, though. I just thought absolutely nothing happens in this comic. So like, we get the recap of what happened at the end of the last issue of Metal, and then we get a big splash page where everyone says where they are and who they're with, and then we get some Dark Knight stuff, and then in the middle of the issue we get this like weird two pages where flash reconnects with his cast and is like oh i'm sorry about everything that's been going on in this book so far can we be okay for right now in this in this tie-in issue that has nothing to do with anything that's been happening and then we're away from that and we're uh basically at the end of the issue already yeah like this was the this is this is in my opinion like the 
poster child for like how to do a bad tie-in issue. Man, I mean, I don't. I think you I don't might think, be right. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong about any of that, but I think that this is just so much better executed than almost any of the one shots of the Dark Knights. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I don't know. Okay, so I I do want to say that in my mind, I think comparing the one-shots and the crossovers are kind of hard because they're doing different things. Um, They're both wasting our money. (laughs) Okay, they're doing the same thing, but they're telling different kinds of stories. Um, And I I mean, I definitely... Some of the one-shots have done their job better than others, but when when I'm like... When I'm critiquing um event tie-ins i tend to treat like crossover stories and and then like one shots a little bit differently um and i think what this issue this issue is a bad crossover because it's it's retreading things that we've already seen it is bringing in the current plot threads of the book in a way that aren't really organic to the story and um it actually really doesn't do anything except set up what the whole crossover is going to be about which is people fighting in bat caves Hmm. which alone seems like a pretty shallow concept (laughs) But how is that any different than I, – I, I guess to me, the I prefer these to the one-shots. If I had to choose just one or the other, oh. I would choose the tie-ins to the one-shots. Oh, well, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, I don't know. It's tough. I, I, think, I think as a concept – this um bats out of hell crossover is not nearly doesn't have like nearly as strong of legs as the gotham resistance one but that's just me like from the outset um and i know i ended up liking that crossover a lot more than you guys did so we'll see how this one shakes out and you also didn't like howard Howard porter's art apparently (laughs) oh it's fine i think i mostly just didn't like this issue <laughs> yeah i mean i'm flipping through it and the art is actually really good now howard porter is very good i'm i'm glad to see him getting like a lot of high profile looks these days you know yeah, he was in the justice league 3000 ghetto for a long time he was but now he's like upgraded he's doing oh. button and, and metal crossovers well <laughs> <laughs> it is the longest running Hanna barbera title <laughs> Scoob. <laughs> Neckerchief. Uh let's jump over to Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps number thirty one, written by Robert Venditti, illustrated by Patrick Zercher, second part of the Superman crossover with Hector Hammond. And uh I, I want to talk about two bits of this, but first I want to hear what Vince thinks of this comic. I hated it. I hated it. Zach, what'd you think of this comic? I I didn't hate it, but um I did not hate it. I actually 
I actually maybe kind of liked it. <laughs> yeah, the... I think I kind of liked it too. Oh boy. There were there were a couple of really problematic parts, and we're gonna get to that in a second. Um, but what I'll say is this: my favorite bit of this is that it brought Hal and Carol back together. Oh, see that? Think, yes, that was my yeah. That's what I want. But I feel like this was the most the the dumbest way to do that. Well, I mean, it's a Venditti book. That's you know, it's it's <laughs> yeah, kind of we can't just MO right now. we can't just award something points for like giving us what we want. It, it's got to be in a. This was so stupid. I'm. Uh, I didn't think this was as stupid as you're saying it was. So they show this like they show Hal this like alternate vision of what he's missing out on, you know. It's they like, give Hal the version of that uh, Justice League Unlimited uh, episode, which is also based on the comic. What's the name of that the, the thing the plant that grows into Clark's uh, chest? Black Mercy. Black Mercy. Everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it gives how that. Yeah, basically, and then like just right in the middle of the issue for pretty much no reason, and then at the end he goes. It just it's such a stupid like. I don't feel like this advances. I mean, other than showing them together for the first time in. You know, since the new Fifty Two, it doesn't advance their relationship in any way, and I don't believe it did. No, it did nothing to tell me that like Hal deserves redemption, or that there's any feelings there. Like it, it's not organic at all. It's completely manufactured, is what it felt like. Which is why I hated it. I mean, it just it felt so phony to me. It felt like, well, it's time to get Hal and Carol back together, so let's let's do it in the hackiest way possible. I don't know. I, I, I guess to me, like you know, giving Hal this vision of of like what his perfect life would be, and it wakes him up to realize how much he's missed Carol and how much he needs to fix that. I think that's actually a, a reasonably honest character beat for him. Yeah, I think I'm more with Brian on this one for sure. I, I I thought that that moment where you know he realizes, and I mean, I feel like that's the most human moment we've gotten from Hal in maybe a year or two. I don't know. I yeah. guess I guess my problem is that Carol Ferris is like a major Green Lantern character. You know, yeah, and where you know where has she been for like the longest time? And apparently, she's just been in this house, like doing nothing. She's been stripping Kyle Rayner. Yeah, what happened to that? Where where did that go? Like, what has she been doing since then? It just feels like this major Green Lantern character got completely dropped for. A year, year and a half, two years, and it's time to go pick her back up. When you know, before all of this, she was leading a fascinating, heroic life. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't feel like an equal presentation of you know who these characters actually are. I guess to me, it was more of like if you're going. 
how can I put this? Like it, it was showing how realizing how much she meant to him, and that's a uh, to me a better way to bring her back than just to have them like have Hal show up at Ferris Air for no reason. You know, like it, it seemed like it was it was a it was a a character driven moment for Hal. Like Hal is presented with this with this realization, and you know, we Hal hasn't been on Earth in how long? And like you know, they're giving him. A, a a reason to cut to stick around on Earth. I don't know. It just yeah. I don't, I don't think it was executed all that well, but I think that I the ideas that are there are, are fine ideas. I guess. Mm. All right. We can disagree once in a while. It's all right. I, I Paul guess. Paul's eating this up right now. As yeah. is Kevin. Are, are the two biggest fans of our bickering. I don't have the fighting spirit either to like <laughs> put up much more of a fight. Um, what did you guys think of the weird Man of Steel moment at the end with Superman uh, essentially killing Hector Hammond? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Zach, what do you think of that scene? I mean, Hector Hammond made him do it. Yeah. What I think is interesting is I think that I, mean, I can't remember the last time Superman did anything this this terrible. Uh, it, it establishes Hammond as a very, very powerful character and one we're likely not going to see again for a long time. But I, something about Superman, like, you know, mortally wounding somebody else always will rub me the wrong way, even if he's not uh, in control of himself. Well, I think I felt like that last... Um beat with him and how kind of touched on that too though where you know Hal's basically just like you know why don't we yeah, what if we just killed everyone <laughs> killed right, all these yeah. ticking time bombs and then they're both just like no yeah um which i thought was a good moment yeah i'm not going to say this was the best issue of this book because it certainly wasn't but I thought this was an improvement over the last few months of this book. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, that brings us to the Hellblazer written by um, Tim Seeley, illustrated by Jesus Marino. Zach, you did not read this, correct? No. Is it is it good? I, I would say that of the three issue arc, the order of like uh, good stories goes two, three, one. With the last issue being by far the best one. I think this is still better than the first issue of the arc, but not by that much. We get yet another like character imagining an alternate future uh, thing. The problem here is that because Constantine is like, because of circumstances, his imagined future has the potential to become the actual like what happens in the world, and they have to stop that. They being Constantine, I guess. Um, yeah, it wasn't great. Anything to add, Vince? No, no, I, I don't. I, I didn't like any of this. Well, you thought the last issue wasn't terrible, if I recall. Yeah, but I don't know. I think I'm in a bad mood or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's jump over to Justice League of America, the Panic of the Microverse finale. 
uh, written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by Ivan Reyes. Uh, we get the most uh, the most sort of definitive rebirth take on a character so far, in so much that Ray Palmer at the end of this issue says to Ryan Choi, "Like you are the Adam." Like it's a full reinstation, reinstating of this character as as a cornerstone in the DC universe. I thought it was a really, I thought that was a really great moment in what uh, in what isn't necessarily uh, the strongest of issue of an issue. Oh, I liked this. I um yeah, I actually you know I've been super down on this arc and really kind of this book in general. Um. But yeah, I liked this issue a lot. They they finally they finally got to the point, you know. They did. Yes. Um, they did. They got um, back to they got back to the early like big idea fun of the start of this arc. They brought in some rebirth stuff, some really interesting rebirth stuff with the blue with the blue hand kind of pushing its yes, way into the yes. into the microverse. Um which is yeah, that's that's a big deal. It's gonna be the it's gonna be the blue hand of creation that Corona saw in Green Lantern, isn't it? That's gonna be oh yeah, Doctor oh, yeah. Manhattan, um, which is gonna be wild. But uh, yeah, and then it left it left Ray Palmer in the microverse, but still connected to the goings on and rebirth. So you know he's still gonna be around somewhere, right? Um, I guess I just felt like. This issue, like, the, everything wraps up pretty early in the issue, and there's just a fair amount of, of uh, like self congratulatory conversation that goes on <laughs> for about half the issue. But you know, but overall, this is the best issue of this arc since the maybe second or third one. Yeah. <laughs> we got, we got a couple of. <laughs> yeah. Zach. <laughs> We got a we got a um, uh, Ray Palmer nut face on the very first page. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I want to talk about how this is some of the, at times the worst Ivan Reyes art I've ever. Yeah. Oh yeah, this yeah. is this is not. He was not in top form of this issue. His Batman looks bad in every panel that he's in. But yeah, primary, but especially that the one I just sent you all in the chat from I think like the second or third page, where he just like. <laughs> the first, that's the is, first page who is that it looks like it's it's kind of the way that rob liefeld draws mouths too mm-hmm. and eyes like far apart it looks like yes. rob liefeld drew that batman yes i i also just like don't understand why ivan reyes's batman has just the the pubiest beard <laughs> Everything's smaller in the microverse. So. That, is, that is true. Um, I, I do think that Reyes tends to uh, use sometimes a, a little bit too much reference for who is currently playing the character on the big screen. I think there's a there's a lot of Affleck in this Batman. Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can see that, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I thought the stuff with... Um, both Adams was really good, and and um, 
I thought the way that they handled um, the the ignition point and and you know what that is and how that worked and how they got rid of it and the even the the Doctor Manhattan and the button stuff I thought all of that was really good. Yeah. This book is at its best when it's doing stuff. And I feel like the last couple issues have, have been just so backstory exposition heavy for no real reason that it's nice to see them actually doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So, huzzah. Uh, that brings us to the Commandy Challenge, number 10, written by Greg Pock, illustrated by Shane Davis. This has sort of maybe the most forward motion. <laughs> oh, what are you guys sending me now? Zach again. Just some more, more Batman picks. <laughs> oh, but we didn't talk about the last page really quick. Um, Prometheus is back, and he's... Uh, th- this is uh, Orlando doing just like... He's going full-on Morris and JLA now. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but yeah. I like that. I thought that was cool. But yeah, anyway, I continue. I digress. Uh, no, uh, to get the the next issue of the Command the Challenge. And this is maybe the most... Oh, God. Stop saying <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Listeners, you are missing out on some great Skype uh, photo sharing right now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh man! All right, let's uh, let's talk about this issue. What I was what I've been trying to say when I'm not laughing about different uh, images of Batman in my chat window is that this probably had the most plot of any issue of the Commanded Challenge. It seems like they realized, oh shit, we're ten issues in, we have to wrap this up someplace, so we have to get Commandy into a place where he is, you know, um, where there's some sort of end game in sight. Yeah, and then they like they introduce Commandy's supposed mother, who's also the commander of this, um, I guess colony he comes across, and then immediately take that away. Essentially, yep. We just got some street sharks, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we gotta stop, guys. We gotta. Yeah, that's a message to the listeners at this point. Yeah, um, I'm I'm more interested in uh, Tom King's Back Matter essay. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in, in just a second. Um, but I, I wonder if first of all, was Shane Davis always announced to be the artist in this book? I feel like I don't remember his name among the original folks listed for this, but I'm. I have not done any research about this. That's just a good uh, look. Looking it up right now. Hold on. Keep, talk, keep talking. Yeah, uh, I thought Shane Davis did a nice job here. I like his work in this issue quite a bit. Um, yeah, it was supposed to be Joe Prado. It says. Okay, so I'm not crazy. All right. Um, I like the uh, the characters' names of dead woman, dead girl, dead man. That's pretty morbid. Yeah, it was. Um, before we get into the back matter, anything else to add about this issue? Um, no, it was fine. 
All right, Vince, take us home, baby. Okay, so keep in mind that um, I really liked Tom King's Commandy Challenge issue. I called it the greatest thing that Tom King has ever written. Um, <laughs> but his essay in the back of this issue explaining, you know, the process of his his issue or whatever is just so perfectly Tom King that I had to bring it up. Um, basically, so he got paired with Kevin Eastman, and he talks about how, oh, the Ninja Turtles were my everything when I was young. You know, I can't believe I get to work with Kevin Eastman. And he gets on the phone <laughs> with Eastman, and Eastman's, like, super excited about working on a Kirby homage. And, oh, I'm going to do all this big Kirby stuff. I can't wait, you know. And then Tom King's like, uh, actually, we're just going to do it where he's in a room. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, by the end, he's like, uh... Uh, Kevin Eastman politely said, all right, I can make it work. And I'm like, what a way to dash the hopes of like a legend Yeah, that they got to work on this comic. And you're, I mean, a guy who never does like comic work outside of his own stuff. Right. Like this is, that's a real get for them. Yeah. And Tom King's like, uh, no, we're going to do it my way. And, uh, and Again, I really, really liked the final product a lot, but like, it's just really funny that like, well, actually, I have this really high concept uh, idea for this that completely dashes your hopes, Kevin Eastman of Ninja yeah. Turtles fame, and he and he makes it sound like Kevin Eastman's like, all right, yeah. I feel like we could be having like a future Kevin Eastman at DC Comics were it not for this. Uh, but, but the butterfly effect of Tom King taking a dump on his dreams. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. All right, we're we're about to hit a rough patch here, folks. We're going to talk about a mother panic number twelve, written by Jody Hauser, illustrated by Sean Crystal. Frankly, so, I I don't really have anything to say about this that I haven't already said about what happens when Sean Crystal's drawing this book. I really have nothing new to add on this. I will say this, and I, I've said this in so many words in the past about this book, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. I, there are a lot of books that we read, and sometimes you need a couple of pages to get on the same like wavelength of a book you haven't read in a month, because especially because we're reading like so many of these twice-monthly books that like you never forget what's happening in Action Comics, because every other week you're reading about it. With Mother Panic, I feel like every time I pick up the book, I think, oh, shit, did I miss the last two issues? I feel like it is very hard to follow. It is not put together in a way that is conducive to reading it monthly. Maybe reading it as a trade will be a lot of fun. But right now, I am I am just done with this. I'm done with this book. Yeah. Zach, what do you think? I, I mean, this was uh... – this was a weird way to close out this arc, I thought. Uh, I mean, I think I thought the stuff with her mom was pretty interesting, but if you think about the arc of this book and kind of like where it started and where it ended, or I mean, I know it's not over, but where where this first kind of season ended, it it doesn't track very well. No, it really doesn't. It's uh, uh... I, I just feel like it's a really missed opportunity because I like the characters. I like a lot of what's happening in the book. It's just that this particular execution of it is just so, so off. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I wish I had something else to say about it because I I was excited about this character and this this book and it's shown flashes of brilliance, but it just really has not lived up to it at all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um let's dig into uh Nightwing the New Order number three, written by Kyle Higgins, illustrated by Trevor McCarthy. We get a little bit of Nightwing going rogue here. We get a little bit of a glimpse at some of the other DC characters, you know, 20 or so years into the future. Um, Zach, what do you think of this? I think I liked this issue better than the previous ones. I continue to like this series a little bit more every time, but I just can't get over um, how hypocritical Dick is through all of this. Mm-hmm. And that like really bothers me. Do you think he's supposed to be though? I I think he probably is, but it just seems like such a like blatant character flaw that I have a hard time getting over it. Um, only because of like the scale of everything. You know, there there there's that one kind of like douchey guard character that's like, you know, I helped you round my dad up, and you know, I did that, yeah. and, you know. Now that it's your turn, you know, I couldn't help but agree with that character in some way. Right. And his, like, takedown of Dick, which I thought was it, – it's weird to think that Dick would be that um, kind of, like, short-sighted in regard to that, you know, that he would have so little empathy for other people that when it – it's only when it affects him that he's like, oh, this is bad and I'm going to cheat the system. Right. I mean I- – I think part of the reason that this series is working more than I thought it would is that it seems they are addressing that concern a little bit. And I was afraid that the series would would just present Dick as this uh, as like all of a sudden, you know, a brand new Dick Grayson is showing up here. This felt a little bit more like a I don't want to say a consistent take on the Dick Grayson character, he's still a hypocrite, but you're seeing more of, of who Dick has been historically. Does that make sense? Mm. Vince, what do you think of this issue? Um, I, I don't really see what you're talking about. Um, but I'm also a little checked out on it. Like I gave it the first two issues to convince me and I read this one, but I kind of, I kind of read it without thinking about it a whole lot, hoping that something would happen that would catch my eye, and um, it's just really not doing it for me. I think that's fair. I, I, I think it's been more interesting than I gave it credit for when it was solicited, but it's still not my favorite thing I'm reading, you know, at any given time. Oh, yeah, not even close. I do think Trevor McCarthy's art is pretty great, though. I really enjoy his artwork. Yeah. What was the last uh, ongoing thing that we saw from him? He, he did, did some Batwoman. Batwoman, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else. I actually thought the stuff with Dick and Kate in this issue was interesting. I like how she's becoming a more an important part of DC like DC storytelling all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. 
Yeah. All right, let's continue this shit streak with Suicide Squad, <laughs> number huh. 28, written by Rob Williams, illustrated by Eleanor Carlini. Um, Zach, <laughs> did you even bother with this? I, I flipped through it a little bit. Um, did you read this? I, I read it. Uh, I, why in the world do they think we would care about Rick Flagg's grandpa? Well, this is there. There is like a golden age Suicide Squad. Well, I know, but like, <laughs> but uh, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I guess I'm. I'm just. Uh, I guess their point is like, well, let's connect the Suicide Squads. You know, <sighs> it's not a good idea. No, I mean, I mean, there's a. There, there's a Morrisonian world where like the idea of connecting the old to the new is good or whatever, but it's not in this this mess of a book where all these characters are just really dumb and bad and uh, like all of a sudden I'm supposed to believe all this stuff that Harley's feeling about that's the part that really gets me like yeah. we're supposed to believe in all this uh, Harley Rick Flag stuff I mean, I, I to just, be fair, she does say she would fuck his grandfather. <laughs> well, he's a silver fox. He is. Um, but I don't, I don't know. That that relationship continues to make very little sense to me. Um, yeah. When when course. you still when you still haven't paid off on this constant flirtation between Harley and uh, Poison Ivy. You know? Yeah. I'm not here, obviously, but I'm talking about in, right. the DC, in the DCU in general. Like, pairing Harley with Rick Flagg was, like, the dumbest thing I can't get over. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eleanor Carlini's art looked nice. Yeah. Yeah. Always does. And uh, a big benefit over last issue... Nowhere in this book does Killer Cock throw up. Wow. I'm shocked. Yeah. Um, Let's jump over to Teen Titans number 13, written by Ben Percy, illustrated by Koi Pham. This issue, the team begins to try and get Kid Flash back, and Robin goes and recruits Red Arrow, Emmy, as a potential new member of the team. I like both of those developments, but especially the, the Emmy development. I hope she joins the book. Yeah, and yet I like I totally buy her reasons for not wanting to. Like this was so oh, totally. well, this yeah. was really well done. Yeah, it it really was. And this was I love when writers who are writing multiple books um, kind of interweave threads from both books. And I this was a great example of that. Um, yeah, this was this was a really good issue. Yeah. yeah I, I uh, I I just I think I think Percy's got all the voices down now, and and they're they're mixing together into a really fun book. Seems like anytime anyone's talking, they're saying something that sounds in character and is additive to the the team feel of the book, you know. And I feel like I feel like like what DC's missing in general are like really strong team books where everybody 
everybody gets their spot, you know, like Steve Orlando's yeah. good at that, and apparently Ben Percy's good at that, and uh, there needs to be a little bit more of that because this book feels really rich for it. Agreed. I also think that with, uh, you know, with if MB joined the team, that would continue to push the book into more sort of classic Teen Titans category where there is there's an archer and a speedster and a robin and an alien. You know what I mean? It's 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 cool. Mm-hmm. I like seeing that stuff. And uh, last and possibly least, Wonder Woman number thirty three, written by James Robinson, illustrated by Emmanuel Bikino. Talk about a book where nothing happened, guys. Oh boy, this was um, this was not great. <laughs> this took it took seven pages to explain that they're growing Darkseid by feeding him God souls, which we already knew, which we established like in a very simple way in that first issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it took seven pages to do that. And then, no, actually more than that, because it goes back in time to show you how she figured that out. Yeah. Oh, my God. Let, less happened in this book than I even remember. Mm-hmm. How, how be- does that work? The best part of this book is the, like, mother box enhanced uh, like playpen that yeah. uh, Baby Dark Side's in. Yeah, I have a lot of issue with this issue, with this book. Um, and Epiphus wearing a Hawaiian shirt was kind of funny, but uh... sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, this drove me crazy for just because I don't understand why you would waste this. Like, Lupacino is one of the best artists in DC's stable. Mm-hmm. She's great. I don't know why I waste her on this. Robinson is a guy who, when he's on his game, can do really interesting things with all different kinds of characters. I don't know why you waste him on this. But, and like the Starman fanboy in me is so angry that this issue is called Times Past. Because <laughs> that means something so much in the Starman lore. Yeah. And there's just nothing at all. Here. Yeah. Well, and you know now, like, I mean, you pretty much get the indication that we know that there's going to be another Times Past issue, and it's probably. Just gonna be the story of how Batman stole Baby Darkseid. <laughs> I think that might actually happen in uh, in one of the metal tie-ins. You think so? Which one? Because it seems like it's getting a. It seems like they said. Well, they didn't say how he stole it. They said how he gets back. Well, I like thought she, it's. It said the. She says like. Um, uh. I gotta find it now. Yeah, me too. I'm looking. All right, while you're looking for it, I just want to point out that on the very last page, uh, and they're showing Jason like setting the boat away from the dock. Yeah. Uh, that's totally John Ham. <laughs> There's never been a more John Ham looking character in a, a DC comic. Does Jason have a giant dick? <laughs> you can see it run down his pants there. Nice, nice. Actually, oh, here it is. It, well, it says, um, yeah. After the mess losing, with Batman, losing him. him. And all I went through to get him back, um, as seen in Metal Number 2 and in another story yet to be told. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Happen. It could happen either place. I don't know why I thought a Metal tie-in. 
Yeah, well, I only think we don't have very many metal tie-ins left. Except that one co-written by Grant Morrison. What? <laughs> Just they're if gonna Morrison keep the... tells that story. If maybe that's the only way I want it. <laughs> they're gonna keep adding metal tie-ins until for till the end of time. Yep. I I like how they just keep adding Grant Morrison to things <laughs> randomly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when you got it, you flaunt it. The Rough and Ready Show with Grant Morrison. Oh. Ugh. All right, folks, that does it for this week. Uh, sorry, we're a little bit downcast this week, but we'll be back next week with more Watchmen, more reviews, and uh, hopefully some more good vibes. But until then, you can find the three of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And remember, if we get ten people to tweet at us about MST3King, the Watchmen movie, we'll do it. So <sighs> make it happen, idea. folks. It's a great idea. It's a bad idea. Good night. If we get... 25 people, we're going to recreate the hallelujah scene. Oh, uh, Brian and I are going to paint ourselves blue. And... Zach, you get to be... Laurie. You get to be Silk Spectre. Okay. Wait, wait a second. Who's, who is uh, Night Owl in that scenario? If we're oh, both painting ourselves blue, Vince. You're, you're right. No, we're going to be re- reenacting the scene from the comic, or the scene with the two with the two uh oh, okay. oh, manhattans that's yeah. what it is i'm i'm mixing up my watchman sex scenes here you are you are sorry <laughs> good night folks <laughs> Do it live. <laughs>